The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Good morning. Welcome to the Best of the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. Last year, a book came out called All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days by Rebecca Donner. It was a story of Mildred Harnack. It became a bestseller, and it was nominated for all kinds of awards. This year, it's uh, the winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award, a big book. And Rebecca Donner was the great-great-niece of Mildred Harnack. And I took this off of her website. Born and raised in Milwaukee, Mildred Harnack was 26 when she enrolled in a PhD program in Germany and witnessed the meteoric rise of the Nazi party. In 1932, she began holding secret meetings in her apartment, a small band of political activists that by 1940 had grown into the largest underground resistance group in Berlin. She recruited working class Germans into the resistance, helped Jews escape, plotted acts of sabotage, and collaborated in writing leaflets that denounced Hitler's regime. Her co-conspirators circulated through Berlin under the cover of night, slipping the leaflets into mailboxes, public restrooms, phone booths. When the first shots of the Second World War were fired, she became a spy, couriering top-secret intelligence to the Allies. On the eve of her escape to Sweden, she was apprehended, and they ordered her execution. On February 16, 1943, she was strapped to a guillotine and beheaded. Mildred Harnack was originally from Milwaukee. Historians identify her as the only American in the leadership of the German resistance, yet, according to Rebecca Donner's website, her remarkable story has remained almost unknown until now. Well, if you listen to the book nook 22 years ago, you knew about Mildred Harnack because I interviewed another author, Shireen Brysack, who had written a book about her. And maybe it didn't sell as well and it wasn't as popular, but it certainly told her story. It's called Resisting Hitler, Mildred Harnack and the Red Orchestra. Let's listen now to the best of the book nook. Good afternoon, Miami Valley. Welcome to the book nook on WYSO. And today my guest is Shireen Brysack. Her new book is Resisting Hitler, Mildred Harnack and the Red Orchestra, The Life and Death of an American Woman in Nazi Germany. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Shireen, how did you hear about Mildred Harnack? I had never heard of her. Well, no one has heard of her. I heard of her because she was a family friend. Uh, my in-laws were in Wisconsin, in Madison, Wisconsin, and they knew both Mildred and her husband, Arvid. And I thought that the story, a woman guillotine for opposing Hitler, was quite extraordinary when I heard it, and I wondered why no one had ever heard of her. And uh, it was left up to me to find out um, what really happened to her in Berlin, the real heart of the story. Apparently, uh, circumstances of history uh, tended to cloak this story in uh, mystery. Yes. Um, she was really a victim of the Cold War because uh, 
she had been, uh, what they knew about her was that she had been passing on information to the Soviets, rather mostly her husband had, so that made her a communist spy. So the Americans wanted to have nothing to do with her, uh, nor did the West Germans. Um, although in East Germany she was kind of a national heroine and her, she had schools named after her and all that, that when the... Um, at the end of the Cold War, of course, people could then really investigate what had happened. And in my book, I show that they've been helping the Americans far more than the Soviets. So we have to reevaluate the whole idea of her being a Soviet spy. You were uh, quite fortunate in a way that the Cold War ended when it did because you had an opportunity to actually track down some people familiar with the story who probably are no longer with us. Yes. I started actually um, tracking people down in 1989. I started out in, in Wisconsin, and then I moved on to East and West Germany, and I interviewed people through the early 90s, most of whom have since died. But what really made the story possible was um, the emergence of the files after the uh, and after the walls fell that I could get at her files in East Germany, the Communist Party archives in East Germany, and the KGB archives, which became available in 1993. So, uh, and then of course the CIA, uh, which had been sitting on a lot of files, coughed them up uh, in the early 90s. As we read resisting Hitler. It's hard for us not to uh, feel a certain degree of affection to Mildred Harnack, yet it's also hard for us to understand her. Well, I think what was hard for me was to understand her infatuation with communism uh, at uh, the period. But when I really got into the period, which was um, the late 1920s and uh, early 30s, which, um, as you will, your listeners will remember, was sort of the height of a worldwide depression. There were six million unemployed in Germany. The Soviet experiment looked uh, quite interesting to people. Uh, you know, uh, work for everyone. And uh, Mildred was quite a modern woman, and she believed in birth control and uh, easy divorce or easier divorce and uh, careers for women. All these were things that, of course, the communist at that time espoused. So she... Um, was quite interested, although um, I wouldn't really call her a communist in the sense of an American root and tootin communist. She was really what I would call a Wisconsin progressive, um, someone who would have, if she'd stayed in the United States, she and her husband, I'm sure, would have gone to Washington and worked, you know, in the New Deal and Labor Administration or something like that. And as we look at Wisconsin with its uh, high percentage of residents of German descent, uh, this was a, a rather unique spot, especially as we went through World War I. Um, the fact that you were of German descent uh, was an important fact uh, during World War I and during World War II, wasn't it? Well, she wasn't German of German descent at all. She was pure Yankee. Um, her her both sides of her family really immigrated from uh, England. So, but she grew up in in West Milwaukee, which was, for all intents and German, uh, uh, all intents and purposes, a German city. Uh, they had signs in the window here here English gesprochen because really the lingua franca was German, and. Uh, it was also very socialist. Milwaukee had a socialist mayor during the time she was growing up, and there was a socialist congressman, Victor Berger. And uh, it was a very, very progressive um, 
uh, city, probably the most progressive in the United States at the time, and there were seven German-language newspapers. So uh, after World War I, of course, this changed, and there were no German newspapers because um, Milwaukee had, they had sent a Senate committee out to examine Milwaukee and uh, see if they were really loyal to the United States after the sinking of the Lusitania. It was a radical city, and she grew up in tremendous poverty in this very German culture, and she really fell in love with uh, things German, including uh, Goethe. Yes. At the time of her death um, in 1943, um, in her cell, uh, before she was guillotined, she was translating the poems of Goethe. We have those poems that she did manage to translate. She was a fish, however, and... um, you go back clear, clear to the beginning. It's almost like putting together a puzzle. I understand you have an interest in archaeology, so this must have come naturally to you. Yeah. Well, I like working in archives, and uh, that was a good thing because I spent an awful lot of time, you know, weeks at a time in archives trying to, you know, piece together what had really happened to her because it wasn't uh, evident. I mean, and nothing had been written on this woman virtually except magazine articles or newspaper articles, which were more often than not wrong about you know, easily proven facts. I mean, one of the things which was always alleged was that she was Jewish, and she actually wasn't Jewish, as I said. She was from pure Yankee stock, and she, in fact, in order to teach in Germany, as she did during the Third Reich, and translate, had to prove her Aryan heritage. So she trans- she traced her uh, uh, forefathers all the way back to the American Revolution, which allowed her, interestingly enough, for someone who was as left as she was, to become head of the DAR uh-huh. in Berlin. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, on the daughters of the American Revolution, if people don't remember what the DAR is. My guest is Shireen Brysack. Her book is Resisting Hitler, Mildred Harnack and the Red Orchestra, The Life and Death of an American Woman in Nazi Germany. It's just been published by the Oxford University Press. Shireen, it's a fascinating story to find out how she met her future husband and ultimately ended up in Germany at the time she did. Uh, This was really fate, wasn't it? Well, yes. Um, She went to the University of Wisconsin, and she was teaching there when Arvid Harnack sort of stumbled into the wrong room, and um, he was supposed to be attending a lecture by his uh, famous labor historian, John R. Commons, and instead he saw this absolutely gorgeous woman uh, in front of an English class, and he stayed, and then he went up afterwards and introduced himself, and he, it was, uh, interestingly enough, he hardly spoke any English, and she certainly didn't speak that much German. But um, in a few months, they were married, and in 1929, um, uh, 1929 found them in Germany. She was uh, getting a doctorate, and he was finishing his second doctorate, and uh, when Hitler came to power in 1933. So they were living in Berlin. By 1930, they were living in Berlin. So she came to Germany, and... At the time, uh, she was very well accepted by his family. They absolutely loved her, didn't they? Yes. Well, she loved everything about German culture, and she uh, she immediately, um, her German became very, very good, and good enough that allowed her to become a translator later on. And um, she was very similar to um, his sister. Um, she was you know, very lovable. Uh, She had a wonderful sense of humor, and she had a real empathy for people. So um, 
she had many, many friends and uh, many friends among their relatives. And people respected Arvid. He was very, very smart. He he got um, two his dog, two doctorates summa cum laude in Germany. This is almost unheard of in Germany. And uh, they respected him, thought he was very bright, but they loved Mildred. And at this time in Germany, if you were a professor, that was a big deal. Yeah, it was like you were a rock star. They had your picture up in, in windows, and uh, it was very well-paid, prestigious profession. That That is, if you were a full professor, um, students paid to hear you lecture. And still in Germany, if you're a hair doctor professor, um, it's like winning the lottery in a way. Uh, you get better seats in restaurants, you get better apartments, all that sort of thing. I like the story about the streetcar slowing down to let the elderly professor jump off. Yes, that was a famous professor, Theodore <laughs> Momsen, a uh, very famous historian. And he, in his younger days, of course, he nimbly leaped off the, the streetcar when it went around this corner called the Knie, as in knee, in, uh, in Berlin. And uh, they would slow down. He was youthful, you know, 25, um, when, it, when it went around the corner so he could leap off. I was intrigued by her in-laws, by that whole circle of people, uh, the immediate family and their friends. What an amazing group of people. Yes, um, the, they all, all these great German academic families, the Delbrooks, the Bonhoeffers, and the Harnacks, um, they were all related, they all intermarried, and seven of them were executed in the resistance, including the most famous of them being Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, the pastor, uh, his brother, um, a great friend of Arvid's. Arvid once worked for him. Karl Bonhoeffer was also executed. Uh, Eustace Delbruck, another friend of Arvid Harnack's, was executed. And, of course, um, Arvid's cousin, Ernst von Harnack, was executed as part of the resistance. And then Arvid and Mildred were executed um, as part of the resistance. So uh, it's quite amazing to me. Uh, obviously, it wasn't something they ate, that they were, you know, it wasn't with their, served with their cereal in the morning, but they all had this sense of that they were the great German families. They were in the great German tradition of Dichter and Denker. They could have all left. They could have gotten great jobs in America. Uh, Dietrich um, Bonhoeffer had a, a job waiting for him at Union Theological. Uh, and the only one that immigrated and actually saved his life by that was Max Delbruck, who later became a, a professor at Caltech and won a Nobel Prize. So, But he always felt that he should have stayed behind, too, and not left Germany to the Nazis. This is what they felt, that they were the, they, they were the inheritors of the great German tradition. They were the great families, and they should not leave Germany to the Nazis. You're listening to the best of the book, Nook on 91.3 WYSO, sharing community voices through inspired storytelling. And we'll continue my archival interview recorded 22 years ago with Shireen Brysak talking about Mildred Harnack right after this. The best of the book now continues on WYSO. Going back to 2000, my interview with Shireen Brysak for her book Resisting Hitler, Mildred Harnack and the Red Orchestra. I think as we look back to World War II, we think of the French resistance, we think of the Dutch resistance. Being part of the German resistance was quite a bit different, wasn't it? 
Well, yes. If you were a member of the French Resistance, of course, you had a support group among your confrères, so to speak, that people that were surrounding you, they could hide you. And, um, you know, it was an en- enemy occupation in Germany. The enemy was all around you. There were, obviously, Hitler had a lot of support. Although I found that there was actually a lot of, on the, the higher levels of the German ministries, there were an awful lot of people in the resistance. So there was a certain amount of, of support there for your being in the resistance, but even when you had meetings, there were always people that were, the Gestapo people that were infiltrating, you were reported for saying things in the office, and what, um, in this group that Mildred and Arvid led, um, there were a number of people who were, had been picked up, Arvid himself was picked up and reported for saying something, his mother was picked up twice and reported once for saying to some children that, um, you know, their wonderful folks leader, um, you know, songs uh, for for uh, folk songs, and you're singing all these Nazi songs, I'll teach you some folks leader. Well, she was reported to the Gestapo. Um, and eventually the family was so concerned about the mother saying uh, these honest, honest, forthright things, but um, obviously um, uh, that they that they felt she was really at risk, and they put her in an institution just to keep her from being reported to the Gestapo. So that was really what it was like. You were surrounded by informers, um, and uh, when they when they would they would at the later stages would print up these anti-Nazi leaflets. You know, the care of Germany. Um, uh, the Care for Germany's feature, uh, Future Goes Through the People was a famous one that they printed up. Well, they printed up maybe 400 copies. Um, surreptitiously, they would print these on mimeograph machines that they had concealed and all. Well, most of these ended up in, the, in Gestapo hands. People just turned them right over to the police. So that's actually why we still have them, is that they were turned in and uh, later ended up in, in uh, archives. After 1933, having an outspoken mother like that was quite a liability. My guest is Shireen Brysack. Her book is Resisting Hitler, Mildred Harnack and the Red Orchestra. Let's talk about the Red Orchestra, what the name meant, uh, where they came from, what they did, and ultimately what happened to them. Well, the Red Orchestra, called the Rota Capella in German, it actually should be the Red Band or something like that. This would be a better translation, but this is the one we're stuck with because there have been books written on it. Uh, the Red Orchestra was a generic name given to Soviet intelligence rings by the German. Germans. Red was for the communist orchestra because the radio operators were called musicians or pianists. Uh, there were branches of the so-called Red Orchestra in Belgium, Holland, Switzerland, France, and even in Japan. But the most important group now, we're talking, um, for the most part in these other countries, of trained radio operators, trained professionals, trained by the Russians, the Soviets. Now, in Berlin, they were amateurs. Uh, Arvid Harnack and his co-leader, Harald Schulze Boysen, a Luftwaffe a lieutenant and adjutant of Goering's, had no training at all. They weren't by any means to considered agents. They were in the resistance. They agreed to help the Soviets. They passed on some information, but they had no trained radio operators or anything like that. And, in fact, they were so out of contact after the Soviet Union was invaded that the Soviets desperately desperate to reach them, uh, they radioed Brussels, where they did have a group of trained agents, and said, send someone to Berlin and meet with these people and bring back information. Well, they did. 
but unfortunately, the Soviets had also sent in this letter, in this uh, transmission, um, the th- names and the three addresses of members of the group. So um, these people, because they, when they came back uh, to Brussels and started transmitting all the information they got from Harnack and Schulze boys, and they stayed on the radio so long that the, they allowed the Obwehr German uh, military um, counterintelligence and the Gestapo to pick them up. And once they picked them up, uh, eventually they picked up more radio operators. They broke the code. They were able to read this transmission uh, sent in 1941, um, uh, and they picked up the whole group. Uh, They picked up, well, depending on who you believe, between 120 and 150 people. Um, They tried a number of them, uh, and there were 49 deaths, executions. And the timeline is quite important here because uh, initially you had the Soviet Union and uh, the Germans together, and then you had them separated, and the uh, terrible winter in Russia had a tremendous impact upon this group because Mildred Harnack ultimately was executed, they think, because Hitler was so angry about what happened in Stalingrad. Yes, she was blamed for Stalingrad. She was tried not once, but twice. In her first trial, which happened um, at the height of the battle for Stalingrad in December um, 1942, um, she was only given six years of hard labor. They felt that she was just should have reported her husband, but basically she didn't know that much. She was an American, after all. Um, and Hitler wouldn't confirm that sentence. He had, he, in this particular case, it had made him so angry he reserved, it was very unusual, the right of confirmation of the sentences. He didn't confirm that sentence. He um, sent, which sent her back for a retrial, obviously giving the message that he wanted a death sentence. Um, they had to find something to blame her for, and General Paulus had just surrendered the Sixth Army at Stalingrad, and they blamed her for Stalingrad and executed her in February of 1942. Now, was there any reaction by the United States that an American woman was guillotined by Hitler? Not at the time. There was nothing um, in 1943 when she was executed. Um, we were at war uh, with the Germans. There was nothing they could have done. After the war, um, they looked into bringing up war crimes um, charges on the um, both the judges, mainly the um, uh, judge advocate in her trial, a man named Manfred Roeder. But once they discovered that she was executed as part of a communist spy ring, um, they distanced themselves. I mean, the Cold War was already beginning. And they said, you know, basically um, she, there was cause to execute her, and we're not going to get into this, and we're not going to try this guy for war crimes. I find it intriguing that with the end of World War II, and the beginning of the Cold War shortly thereafter, the Nuremberg trials did see the uh, punishment of a lot of people, but they drew the line if if you were primarily anti-communist, like this Rotor fella, you you got off scot-free pretty much. And the same thing happened in a way in Japan with uh, our serious effort to have a, a friendship with Japan, with the, the political changes over there. A lot of war criminals were not punished over there as well. Well, including Hirohito. <laughs> Especially <laughs> him. <laughs> recent book is brought out. Yeah, um, the 
it, they they the interesting thing to me though uh yes they didn't try the that none of the lawyers no nazi judges were ever executed no none of these people that actually made the system work that executed all the people in the july 20th plot to kill hitler the resistance none of those the the main judge of course i think um uh, uh, the, the the this horrible man uh who was the main uh, person in in their trials? Uh, I think a building collapsed on him, so he died of other uh, you know of, of other causes. But none of these justices, uh, lawyers, anybody ever received any and any um, kind of real penalty. Um, so I think that 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 was quite terrible. But more importantly, in Mildred's and Arvid's cases, nobody ever really, until this book, ever really looked into the American archives to see if, by any chance, since they had very close contacts in the American embassy, uh, uh, both during the Dodd embassy, which lasted from 1933 to 1937, the, the daughter of Ambassador Dodd was a woman named Martha Dodd, and she was Mildred's best friend. Nor in a later period, when there was a young first secretary, Donald Heath whose son Mildred tutored and who was a very close friend of theirs. They spent almost every holiday together between 1938 and 1941. Well, it turned out when I really looked into the archives at Hyde Park and and the State Department archives in Washington that Arvid Harnack had been providing the Americans with far more information than he ever provided the Soviets. So it was really a double standard that nobody really looked at this and said, hey, um, you know, after all, the Soviets were allied with the Americans, and for three years, this guy really helped the Americans. So I think it's time to relook at relook at these people, put them where they belong, it in terms of the genuine resistance um, people that really tried to bring down the Nazi government, rather than seeing them as Soviet agents, Soviet spies. Yes, they helped the Soviets, but in no way were they any uh, means trained spies. And when you look at the KGB documents, the KGB was was outraged that they would still and very carefully handle them because they really kept saying they didn't want the KGB didn't want them involved in resistance activities and passing out leaflets and and any kind of things like that because they felt they would be picked up doing that and that that would um, you know uh, uh, compromise any information they were giving to the Soviets. But Arvid Harnack and Schulze Boysen insisted on their resistance activities, and it's very clear. From these files, uh, that they in fact uh, continued these resistance activities. That the resistance activities also included um, transporting Jews over the border. There are four documented cases of Mildred Harnack getting visas for um, uh, German Jews, getting them into Norway, getting them to the United States. So there were a lot of genuine resistance activities which had really been overlooked because of the Cold War. Uh, the tangled webs we weave. Martha Dodd, the most bizarre piece in the puzzle, even dragging in people like Thomas Wolfe into the whole story. Yes, um, Martha Dodd was a sort of 24-year-old in the old uh, non-political, uh, politically correct days. We would have called her a nymphomaniac, oversex nymphomaniac. But she had affairs with everybody who was worth in power in Berlin. The heads of three secret services. She was had. She was having an affair with Deals, the head of the Gestapo. At the same time, she was having an affair with Armand Berard, the head of the so-called head of the Duzium Bureau in Berlin, and then also with a young man named Boris Vinogradov, who was a Russian, uh, a, a Russian first secretary in the Russian and the Soviet embassy there in Berlin at the same time. She also had an affair with Thomas Wolfe in the uh, 
at during 1935 and 36, and also with Louis Ferdinand, who was the would have um, who was the grandson of the last Kaiser. So um, she was really to Berlin what Alma Mahler was to turn of the century Vienna. <laughs> uh-huh. She also had affairs and was very close to a number of American newsmen, including William Shire. She's very really? prominently featured in his book Berlin Diaries. Yeah, she got around. Yeah, and she probably was a real spy. Uh, she really uh, was compromised, did ma- did pass on uh, information uh, from the American embassy to the Russians and uh, volunteered her services when she returned to New York in 1937. And in fact, um, I don't think she did very much for the Soviets because I think she was simply a, a, too lazy. She, she came back to the United States, got married, um, but then um, she got involved in a, the Sobel ring on Boris Moros, who was a kind of famous guy in the 1950s. Uh, a double agent uh, fingered her, and she was charged with three counts of espionage. Um, uh, they, it, this was now we will remember, your audience will remember, the height of the Rosenberg area in the 19th, era in the 1950s. And um, she fled to Prague with her husband. First she fled to Mexico, and then she when it looked like she was going to be extradited from Mexico, she fled to Prague in 1957, where she died in exile in 1990. Sounds like she deserves her own book. Yeah, well, <laughs> there probably will be one. People have asked me if I'm going to write more, but I think I've kind of almost everything I've known about Martha Dodd or was interested in, I've put in this book. There's a lot on Martha Dodd in this book. I love that sidelight where Mildred Harnack is uh, doing uh, cultural criticism or literary criticism, and she talks to Thomas Wolfe and interviews him, and he's in Germany, and because he has some anti-Semitic leanings, he thinks the National Socialists are just fine at the time. And you also have her asking him questions about Southern writers from the United States. I love that little sidelight. Well, you know, she had a real scoop that has really been undiscovered by Thomas Wolfe uh, biographers. That they they certainly knew about his Berlin days, but they never they never looked into who Mildred Harnack was in this little notebook. Uh, he's, she's mentioned in his notebook in his pen notebook, but she did. Uh, nobody ever had found this interview that she did with Thomas Wolfe where he really uh, gave away his, uh, what was interesting to me was he kind of gave away his how it operated with Max Perkins, which he later then used in a book, The Story of the Novel. And she had some correspondence with Max Perkins, which I found in the archives in, in the great, great editor at Scribner's, in the Scribner's archives in Princeton. And she loved Thomas Wolfe. That that was the writer she loved among all others. She never translated Thomas Wolfe. She translated uh, the most famous book she ever translated was was uh, Lust for Life, uh-huh. a translation which is still in print. The story of Vincent Van Gogh. But what's hilarious? That's Irving Stone's. Yeah, uh-huh. what's yeah. hilarious about? She also um, translated his his Sailor on Horseback about Jack London, but that was never published. It didn't it didn't pass Goebbels' propaganda ministry. They had to okay everything. Wow. Jack London was too far. Left, but I, the hilarious thing about the uh, lust for life—it's um, a terrible translation. Actually, <laughs> it's very much shorter than the original book. It's still in print, in paper-bound in, in Germany. And um, I asked why they hadn't ever retranslated, and they said, "Oh well, it's—you don't have to play, pay a dead translator money, so it's probably <laughs> just economic reasons." But what she did to the story was, um, yes, she took out any Jews that were in the story. That was what you would have done during the Third Reich. If you wanted to, to 
um, published the book. But she also changed Vincent Van Gogh into a working-class hero, which he certainly wasn't, a real kind of Marxist hero, which he wasn't in the original book. And the book is substantially, as I say, shorter than the than the original. It was quite uh, interesting to read it and compare it with the original. My guest is Shireen Breisack. Her book is Resisting Hitler, Mildred Harnack, and the Red Orchestra. I really have to applaud all the work that you did, all the research and uh, travel and just digging. And you must have been delighted uh, when they found that treasure trove of letters that she sent to her mother. Yes, when I started this book, I was a novice biographer, and I thought, oh, well, there's lots of information, but I didn't really realize until I got into it how important the voice was, and for the voice of the heroine, you really have to have letters. And I had only a handful of letters from her because they were all destroyed in Gestapo raids and the the apartment where they lived um, was destroyed in the war as well. So there were very few letters uh, which her family had received and kept. And then suddenly in 1992, um, her two nieces were cleaning out uh, the attic where Mildred's mother had lived, and Mildred had lived for a short time when she lived in Washington for a year. And the mother had saved and tied up with a strand of Mildred's hair um, letters that she wrote uh, from Germany between 1929 and 1935 when the mother moved to, uh, and then later died about that time, a year later. So these letters really detailed the coming to power of Hitler. She would write her mother every week. So I had these wonderful letters between 1929 and 33. After 33, naturally, they're very careful because she's not she's afraid they're being opened and also they're not very revealing but um they're very revealing in the period from 1929 to 33 although not about her trip to the Soviet Union which she made in 1932 there's just a kind of uh elliptic mention of the trip and telling her mother not to mention it you know that sort of thing uh, well it's an amazing story and uh, looking at your uh, bio I think you've got an amazing bio. Uh, You were a producer for CBS News and made quite a number of documentaries that our listeners are aware of. So this is a a big change for you to to do a biography, isn't it? Yes. um, It was, um, you know, it's journalism, uh, but it's also allowed me to take a much longer, closer look at history. And because you're always kind of frustrated with journalistic deadlines that, you know, you had in those days a long time, actually, six to nine months to produce a documentary. It's probably shorter nowadays. But um, you really could not, even with research staffs, go into the depth of to what you can do in a book. And uh, it was a real challenge. And uh, also, it's, you know, it's permanent, a book. <laughs> uh-huh. It's on your shelf, and uh, it, people tend to keep these things in print for a while. And so, you know, more people see a documentary if it's a network documentary, but, but more... Um, you know, you you do hear from your readers uh, in a way you don't hear from your viewers. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. We really appreciate you taking some time to uh, share with our listeners here in Southwest Ohio. Well, thank you. And uh, if anybody wants to know more about the book, they can visit the website, which is at www.mildredharnack. That's all one word, and Harnack is spelled H-A-R-N-A-C-K.com. And uh, there's, you know, more, as I say, about Mildred, the people in the book, um, background on the book. The book is Resisting Hitler, Mildred Harnack and the Red Orchestra. My guest has been Shireen Brysack. It's just been published by Oxford University Press. 
And I first heard about it because you had a piece in the Times recently. Yes, about a month ago, uh-huh. yes, on the German resistance. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the best of the book nook on WYSO. Going back to the year 2000, my interview with Shireen Brysak for her book Resisting Hitler, Mildred Harnack, and the Red Orchestra. And I remembered this interview last year when I heard about another book about Mildred Harnack called All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days, written by her great-great-niece. It was an instant New York Times bestseller, nominated for all kinds of awards. And on her website, it says, her remarkable story has remained almost unknown until now. Well, that book uh, came out 22 years ago, and I knew about Mildred, and I'm sure this other book is extraordinary, and it's a story that needs to be told, a story of a woman who fought the fascists in Germany. She's originally from Milwaukee, and she was executed by Hitler for what she did. She tried to get out. She tried to escape to Sweden, and they caught her before she could do it. And that reminded me of the story of Jura Seufer. A hundred years ago, Jura Seufer and his family moved from the Ukraine to Vienna, Austria. And his short life ended in a concentration camp in 1939. Jura fought the fascists in Austria. The Social Democrats who were running the government of Austria in the 1930s allowed the fascists to take over. They hardly whimpered a bit of resistance towards what was going on, and Jura Seufer was outraged. And he, he fought about this. He, he thought it was worth fighting for, fighting the fascists, and his disgust for the Social Democrats for allowing the fascists to take over the government made him do all kinds of things, which ended his life at a young age. He was a great writer, and a book has come out recently by Dorothy James called Full of Hunger and Full of Bread, The World of Jura Seufer, 1912-1939. And I'm hoping this coming week to speak to the editor of this book, and I've got a uh, Best of the Book Nook bonus coming your way, featuring some work by this editor, who I think is probably our greatest unknown American writer. That's coming up right after this. It's your bonus segment on the Book Nook, and today I'm going to bring you a little treat. I think Ben Miller is our greatest unknown American writer. He's only published one book, and recently he contributed part of his memoir to a literary magazine called Raritan. When Ben was in high school, he came from a family that uh, was having a lot of trouble. Both of his parents were lawyers. You would think they would be doing okay, but they were not. They had very little money, and uh, Ben was in really bad shape. He, he was trying to become a writer, but he didn't really like going to high school. He went to Davenport Central in Iowa. And this is an excerpt from a piece that he wrote in this literary journal about the time he was asked to go to a special college class when he was still in high school, a class in writing. The nuns at Mary Crest College had invited him to go there for free for this class, but he had to get permission from Assistant Principal Buis. Here's what he wrote. 
When word arrived that Assistant Principal Buis must see me in his office, I walked. I did not hop. Smiling, I sauntered down the locker-lined hall, conjecturing there would be plenty of pride over my coup of free college credit. He might even call Vol, faculty advisor to reporters for the school newspaper, The Blackhawk, proposed an article. Mr. Miller, boomed the tall bureaucrat in the back office of the gray suite. Tom was his first name. He waved me in. I went in, still grinning. Thick plastic eye frames and rummage sale clothes, yes, but each item carefully picked out of a church basement table heap for its vivid color or esoteric pattern. I occupied a metal chair that did not swivel. His chair with the cushion swiveled, but he settled into it with such game authority that it did not move a centimeter, cemented in place by the weight contained in a plain, perfect suit. His head was bald and oval. The sculptural brow, a pinkish cardiac face of jowls and a network of veins stretching across the heap of the nose. His eyes appeared half-closed when fully open, as now, staring down the folder on the desk's pea-green blotter. What's this here? From Marycrest College. Uh, you haven't read it? The thing is, I'm a numbers man. They were either that or that. And just like that, as if he had heard the silent swipe of his pomposity, his head lifted and forearms too, elbows still planted on the blotter, ten plump fingers formed a basket that rocked to and fro under the double chin. Uh, you have a grade point average of 1.8. Perhaps the rarest 1.8 in the United States of Dale Carnegie and Lou Reed. I had earned the 1.8 by being present. Never once had I cut a class valuing the writing time in a place cleaner than my house. I see you even flunked out of driver's education. I could explain. I had had only one driving experience prior, in Oakdale Cemetery, after dark, half-lane gravel road, my supposed instructor, the vampire with the bowl cut, squealing, turn, twice at every turn, slower, then faster, and otherwise dueling with me madly. After the dusty 10-minute drive, I had less of an idea which pedal was which, but I didn't want to bring her into this. Not mother. Bad luck. Uh, Sister Annette, she she's seen my writing, was the defense I produced. You need my approval to leave school before the final bell at 3.30. Blood promenaded across his pressure-flayed face. Within a year, he would have a heart operation and I would walk over to his ranch house and stare at the pulled curtains and wonder what the surgeon found in his chest. Charcoal, maybe. Blackboard erasers. I'm concerned that this uh, college class will interrupt your learning. Interrupt it? Uh, learning is vital here at Central Education comes first. Education? Paramount. Then... Why? Time and place for everything. You appear to have enough trouble passing the classes you are already taking. Twice you have flunked out of geometry. Uh, my last period is a study hall. I wouldn't be missing any classes. But Benjamin, you would be missing a fine opportunity to study. My nervous gaze trailed over office buttons, dials, graphs, charts, cabinets. 
which means I'm afraid it would be irresponsible of me to sign these papers and let you run off unprepared to an institution where you'd fail, giving Central a bad name, hurting the chances of other students who might apply there in the future. You're not going to let me take a free class for college credit? Not at this time, he practically crooned. I remained seated. He said it all again to assure me I had heard him correctly. My left knee did the jitterbug. How is it you can distrust an adversary completely, yet for all he is distrusted, suspect the man is not distrusted enough, because a Buist deserved more distrust than any one human being could summon. He deserved the distrust of many thousands, maybe millions, maybe tens of millions of young people. But even so, I knew I had messed up too, big time. At that moment in the building were a few who might have helped. Betty Christian, the tennis-playing English teacher who had awarded my story, Where is the Balloon Man? First prize in the Devil's Diary Literary Journal Contest, and another English teacher, Dick Stahl, who often presented his formal poetry at Writer's Studio. Either might testify to my industriousness, my possibilities, but it hadn't occurred to me to ask for their help in this matter because, because I had Sister Annette on my side, and if that was not enough, well, how could that not be enough? I'm sorry, I realize you're disappointed, but that's the way it is. He nodded in agreement with his sane, strong judgment. Anything else would send the wrong message, understand? He not only considered it his task to stop me from taking a class at Marycrest College, that also felt it was his job to convince me he was correct in nixing the generous offer, but for all he knew, the good reason to think it Given my GPA and the economic situation, I wore head-to-toe taped iframes, frayed sleeves, the repurposed bowling shoes. We can't bend the rules. You'll thank me someday. He was practically demanding I applaud my own demise, arms rising again, a maestro at orchestrating, yes, sir, right you are, sir, self-humiliation. Jacket sleeves pulling back, cuffs, accurate watch, male bulk almost seeming to bubble under its starch cotton seal. My sins were what? I had failed to take incompetence like Berstetta seriously, failed to correct a meaningless, gifted, and talented title. It's for the best, he contended. He was doing a different thing than Mrs. Toher, my counselor, had done weeks earlier. Forget about college and go to vocational school, she advised. That was her opinion given my GPA and just an opinion. She wasn't snatching away anything I had. Buis was. He was doing an aberrant, irrational, possibly evil thing as if it were an absolutely normal thing to do, and it would work perfectly if I was who he thought I was. You'll see. You'll see. One for me, the other for him. But few functionaries were as confident as they acted. I'd seen a strange parent with holes in her shoes rattle a slew of stuffed shirts with non-sequiturs and finger-pointing. You may return to class now. How many others had he done this to? How many more students would, would he double-talk and bully and try to dispense with like trash just because they were self-taught? Tony O., the musical genius. James, the school's Picasso. I stood at last. I was shaky but not tearing up, as would have happened at 15. In the immediate wake of that untreated mental breakdown and battle with anorexia that writing helped me win, 
If attending Writer's Studio had, despite my artistic debacles, granted me too much nerve in this instance, neither was that nerve vanishing. What I got from Karen, Dave, Howard, Carroll, and the rest only seemed sturdier in comparison with the weak antics of Buis. From them, I had learned how to fail better, to paraphrase Samuel Beckett. I had learned that if you do not discard your hopes in the dumpster, your hopes are not in the dumpster, period. At Thursday night meetings, I discovered I needed no system's approval to exist. I walked away from the narrowed eyes of the school leader with his hands on his love handles. I looked ahead at the metal frame of his office door. I had to pass through it first. I looked to another door beyond secretarial desks, the next frame I must breach, and got there and stood in the hall looking at the fact that I now had to tell my mother the bad news, listen to her crow. I'm right to be paranoid. You should be too. The world is against us. And then watch her make not one call in my defense because she was all talk, full of guilt about how she had lived and eager to confront authorities only when she could catch the male fool off guard. Buis expected an angry parent call. She wouldn't fall into the trap. This new predicament would instantly become all about her comfort and no one else's. Then I had to tell anxious Karen the bad news. And then she had to inform Sister Annette quietly dying in the orderly apartment. That was Ben Miller. An essay from his next memoir that's called The Writer's Studio. The Writer's Studio was a group that Ben was in in Davenport when he was a teenager. They got together and compared their writing and read from their writing. And He's turned into an amazing writer. I really believe that he's just incredible, and he's my favorite unknown American writer. And I'm hoping to record an interview with him next week because he has just edited a book by Dorothy James called Full of Hunger and Full of Bread, The World of Jura Seufer, 1912-1939, the story of an Austrian writer who died in a concentration camp. He fought the fascists, and he paid the ultimate price, just like Mildred Harnack did. We heard about that a little earlier on the program today. I hope I get that interview for you. If I do, we'll air it next Saturday morning at this same time, 7 a.m. on the Book Nook. Thanks, as always, for listening to your public radio station and to programs like this one. And you can listen to over 800 podcasts of Book Nook interviews. They're archived on our Book Nook pages at wyso.org. For the Book Nook, I'm Vic McCunis. Thanks, as always, for tuning in, and I hope you have a, a great weekend.